Welcome to Night Light. Step away from the mainstream and gather around as we enlighten the world and our realities and travel this cosmic journey we call life. Join us as we share with you and provide that beacon that can guide us all to a better way. Explore with us as we examine a metaphysical montage of spiritual insights covering everything from the mundane to the magical, UFOs to unicorns, and everything in between. This is a time of awakening, of sharing and evolving, of spreading our wings and soaring on the cosmic breath of creation. Come and join with other light-minded spirits as we weave our lights together to seek understanding, enlightenment, and with a little luck, some wisdom. This is Nightlight, a reminder that you are never alone. everybody. Thanks so much for sharing your time with us. We are very aware that the most precious commodity we have while on this planet is our time here. So that you choose to spend time with us, we greatly, greatly appreciate it. And we're committed to bringing you special, wonderful shows. Uh, before we get started, though, I want to thank Ken Quiethawk for his amazing intro. He and his wife are, can be found at nativestorytellers.com. And for those of you that have not experienced Native storytellers and stories, it's an amazing way of preserving history, mythology, and and all sorts of wisdoms. It's a a manner in which people were taught and uh, that precedes textbooks. And to be honest with you, I think the material that they saved and have preserved is probably more precious than what our textbooks are teaching today, but but that's for another show. My guest today is Andrew Collins, and he has written an amazing book um, along with Dr. Greg Little. Andrew is a science and history writer who's been investigating the origins of human civilization for over three decades. He's a noted explorer and co-discoverer of a massive cave complex beneath the Giza Plateau, now known as Collins Cave. And he's the author of several best-selling books, including From the Ashes of Angels and Gobekli Tepe, Genesis of the Gods, as well as his most recent book, Denisovan Origins, Hybrid Humans, Gobekli Tepe, and the Genesis of the Giants of Ancient America. Huge title, but it has a huge amount of information in it. It reveals the profound influence of the Denisovans and their hybrid descendants upon the flowering of the human civilization around the world. It traces the migrations of the sophisticated Denisovans and their interbreeding with Neanderthals and early American populations more than 40,000 years ago. It shows how the Denisovan, Denisovan hybrids became the elite of ancient societies, including the Adena mound-building culture, and it explores the Denisov, Denisans Denisovians, oh, I'm going to stop this and just call them the, the people. Extraordinary advances, including precision-matched stone tools, 
jewelry, tailored clothing, and celestially aligned architecture. It's, it's such a pleasure and such a thrill to have you with us today, Andrew. Thank you so much for, for sharing your time with us. Uh, it's my pleasure, Barbara. <clears throat> yep, raring to go. So uh, it's Denisovan. So uh, as I was explaining to you before we came on air, um, it's named after a, uh, a monk who occupied the cave, the Denisova cave uh, in Siberia, from which obviously we get the term Denisovans. And the, mm-hmm. the paleogeneticists geneticists who realized the existence of the, uh, the Denisovans um, came up with that name and that pronunciation. Um, and although some people have chosen to pronounce it Denisovan, Actually, that, that's incorrect, but um, I suppose at the end of the day, we're all talking about the same thing. So, Yeah, they, they are an amazing people that we didn't even know about until, what, 2010? Yep, 2010. Um, I mean, the, the story is, is a fabulous one, really. Um, the, a bone was discovered uh, in the cave in 2008, uh, there are also a couple of very large uh, human molars discovered as well. Um, and one of them was so large, they actually thought that it was from a cave bear uh, until it was you know, formally identified as that, as part of the, the hominin species, the homo species. And um, the, the, the small bone was that of a little finger. It was sent off to two different laboratories. Uh, one of them was in Germany, uh, and the other one was in California. Uh, And the one in California, and there seems to be a a bit of a grey area as to what happened, but the fact of the matter is they didn't do their job. Um, They did not come up with the, the, you know, the the sequencing um, to try and give us the genome for that particular individual. But the people in Germany did. Uh, And in 2010, um, the Max Planck, Institute of Physical Anthropology uh, announced that they not only had done the sequencing, but that they could confirm that this individual belonged to an entirely unknown type of hominin. In other words, it wasn't one of our ancestors. I mean, we're called anatomical modern humans or homo sapiens. Uh, And it wasn't Neanderthal either. now, Neanderthals are known as, as Homo um, Neanderthalis, if I'm right, if that's the correct pronunciation. And the Denisovans were something completely different, completely new. And so the first thing that we realized is that these other two teeth, these large molars, also belong to the Denisovans. So that was, you know, establishing their reality because the DNA links with them. But beyond that, what it became apparent really quickly is that a percentage of Denisovan DNA or ancestry as they call it was inherited by a large number of human populations mostly either in Central Asia, South Asia East or Southeast Asia but also uh, in Australia uh, also in the Oceania you know, the the Pacific area, Um, but nothing in the western part of the Eurasian continent. Um, And what's obvious is that 
people are coming out of Africa, uh, probably, you know, in ways, but the, the biggest wave was probably around 65,000 years ago. Uh, and they very gradually moved eastwards, um, as well as obviously westwards. Those that went westwards into Europe encountered the Neanderthals. But those that went towards the east encountered not only the Neanderthals, but by the time that they reached the area of Central Asia, they started encountering these other types of people. And they interbred with them. And obviously this created hybrid descendants of the Denisovans and their own ancestors uh, and they live on today I mean they they carry the legacy of the Denisovans um, and the questions obviously begin to be asked of you know who were these Denisovans what did they look like what was their impact on human civilization how did they think what what artifacts have they actually left us so we'll look at the the last of those questions first, what artifacts have they left us? And in the Denisova cave, uh, in the exact layer that they found uh, almost all of the, 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 the Denisovan um, fragments, which now, by the way, also include uh, two pieces of a cranium. Um, and by the way, uh, one other piece of Denisovan was found on the Tibetan plateau in a cave which dates to about 160,000 years ago, years ago. And that, that's a jawbone, a lower jawbone or mandible. Uh, but we might come on to that separately. But at the Denisova Cave, which is in Siberia, very close to the borders with China, Kazakhstan and uh, Mongolia, uh, is that in the cultural layer relating to Denisovans, they found some incredible things. Uh, this includes what's known as the Denisovan um, uh, is it a bracelet. Yeah. Um, it's not really a bracelet. It's more like this this stone bangle or fragments of a stone bangle, um, which is made of a, a, a type of mineral called chloritolite. And chloritolite is beautiful green colour, like bottle green in colour. Uh, and it changes its colour depending whether it's in natural light or artificial light. So it seems to have been chosen for its aesthetic purpose. And this you know this bangle um, is incredibly beautifully finished it, it, it shows incredibly advanced knowledge of of shape and design of polishing but also it has a hole pierced through it presumably to hang something on it you know from a cold and this hole when looked at under a microscope was found to have a feed rate of the creation of the, of the actual hull that would have necessitated a drill that was running as fast as a modern-day drill. Now, this doesn't necessarily mean that they had uh, electric drills or anything like that. What it does mean is that the Denisovans, and by the way, this item's probably about forty-five to 50,000 years old and arguably even older, is that the Denisovans had the brains to create fast spinning drills at that time but beyond that the earliest uh, bone needles in the world have been found in the Denisova cave uh, they date to 45 to 50,000 years and clearly tell us that the Denisovans were not only sewing but also making tailored clothing almost certainly tailored clothing um, then you have uh, the evidence of 
uh, horse DNA and horse bones found in there that have suggested to some academics that the Denisovans domesticated and perhaps even rode horses 45, 50,000 years ago. Um, carrying on, uh, the, the archaeologists have found what they call uh, pencils uh, made out of red ochre. Uh, this is obviously a, uh, an iron oxide uh, substance uh, which is used by ancient cultures, and in fact some cultures even today, to create body art, cave art, uh, and just maybe even to create you know, glyphs and symbols. Um, and then beyond that, and this is arguably the most important of them all, but not necessarily for the listener, is that they seem to have developed their own type of stone tool technology. Now, it's a form of blade technology or microblade technology, which from this point onwards gets used by our own ancestors, our own um, you know, modern human ancestors, and is, becomes a regular part of their toolkit right the way down to the Neolithic age. Um, and that, that's quite amazing. And also it would seem to have been fashioned in a particular way using something called pressure flaking. Uh, this is where you get this object usually made of bone or wood or antler, uh, which you prize pieces of let's say, you know, flint off of a core uh, to produce these beautiful blades, really long blades. And this was a technique that they developed and, you know, and, um, you know, refined, that's the right word. And it's then adopted by our own, our own ancestors. And the interesting thing about this is that the spread outwards, not only of this tall technology, but also, let's say, um, bone needles, for instance, all seems to begin in the area of Siberia and a little way to the south of Siberia in Mongolia and then spread westwards into Europe uh, and southwards probably into India, uh, Pakistan uh, and southwestwards into southwest Asia, um, where obviously eventually you have places like Gebekli Tepe, uh, rising up uh, at the very end of the Upper Paleolithic period, around 9,600 BC, you know, and there's a link. All of these things are linked, and it seems right. to go back to the presence of the Denisovans in the Denisova Cave and that region. I mean, clearly they weren't just there. I mean, they were all over the region, um, but uh -huh. our knowledge of them is is focused at the moment through pl the only places that we know for certain that the layers of occupation relate to them and not to our modern ancestors. You know, so that, that's, that's important to, to emphasize because people say, well, you know, how can you make so much of the Denisovans when we've only got two sites where we know for certain that they lived, you know, and that's at the Denisova cave and uh, this other cave, Bashiaya, cave in, um, in, in Tibet, in what is today northwest China. So, but the answer is we can get a hell of a lot out of genetics and we can also get a lot from the artifacts um, and the development and spread of those artifacts 
that are found in the Denisova cave in the so-called Denisova layer. Well, I think also it it in many ways your book is 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 so important because it it helps to change the concept of you know these different levels of evolution and and kind of bring bring us to realize that Neanderthals and 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 even before they they weren't stupid and they didn't have knuckles that dragged on the ground they they absolutely no. had intellect and they were able to i mean with with the tools and the jewelry that that certainly is amazing and the, the yep. books basically give you a chart and say from this to this it was this from this to this it was this from this to and yep. and the reality is they overlapped they interbred they they, well, they developed did. yeah you know they they well, they yeah, developed right. by by interbreeding in many in many cases absolutely and, and I um, I think what it, sorry go go ahead no you go ahead <laughs> no no I was going to say that. Um, that obviously their legacy lives on within us. You know, that the, the even though the Denisovans disappear, certainly in the area of Siberia, Mongolia, and China by about 40, 45,000 years ago, um, they may well have hung on in certain areas, particularly in Southeast Asia, all the way through till about 15,000 years ago. And that's really significant because that means that the closer they come to the modern day, the more of an impact they would have had on human civilization. And I think that the thing that needs to be pointed out here, when people look at our civilization, uh, and particularly with things like Gebekli Tepe in southeast Turkey, which was constructed around 9,600 BC, when they see that, they naturally assume that there must have been something beforehand some kind of lost civilization. Um, and I'm de not denying that. I mean, this is something which, you know, people like my colleague uh, Graham Hancock talks about a lot. Obviously, I've mentioned in my books, uh, I call it something different. We call it the shamanic civilization, which is the same thing, but it's not materially based. It's not a culture, a civilization based on cities and roads and hierarchies and whatever. You know, it's more to do with the whole inner structure of the invisible world that shamans would have believed in and would have been universal across not just the Eurasian continent but also North America and perhaps even South America as well um, and it's something which was you know they strive to understand and connect with through shamanic experiences places of power um, and through journeys of the soul journeys which were seen to be associated with the heavens, um, particularly the Milky Way and particularly certain constellations, uh, Cygnus being one, Orion being another, um, and that these were part of, of, of like these um, pathways that would lead between different parts of this invisible world. But getting back to the, the Denisovans themselves, yeah, they would seem to have been very, very advanced, as we've said. Uh, the Neanderthals were a lot more advanced than what we than what we've ever really given them credit. And plus, they didn't look, you know, like they they were ape men. Basically, they looked very similar to us. 
mm-hmm. and the Denisovans possibly were even more closer to the way that we look. Um, I mean, you know, there have been uh, reconstructions to try and uh, paint a picture of what the Denisovans look like, and I'll be honest, they, to, so far they don't look particularly brilliant. I mean, I'm working with an artist at the moment in um, California uh, who is producing um, different sketches which we're looking at and trying to uh, align with all of the evidence, the anatomical evidence, the genetic evidence, um, and also, you know, from from a lot of legends and stories about peoples that lived in the same region, um, which we think do relate to the Denisovans and their presence in certain areas in the past. Because the other thing is, what did the, the, the Denisovans look like? Well, as I said, we haven't got much, but what we can say, and this is what the paleogeneticists have actually said, is that they must have been very large people. Very, um, I mean, I hesitate to say the word tall, but I believe that we're going to find that they were very tall. Uh, I think that they were anything up to seven to seven and a half feet in height and probably had the, the build of a modern wrestler, a WWE wrestler, I would say. Um, and I'm not saying they all were like this, but I think some of them were. And I think that there's every chance that memories in the same regions where the Denisovans were certainly known to be located, you know, let's say Siberia, Mongolia, China, um, you know, Southeast Asia, that the stories in those areas that talk about giants and the fact that there were giants, you know, in the world in the past before our modern human ancestors turned up in the same place, I think that they probably are a memory, be it abstract, of the presence of Denisovans and what they achieved during their time here on Earth. Um, So we know that they were very tall. Um, We know they had large jaws. Uh, We know they had big noses, it would seem. This is uh, another feature. Um, They probably had some, what we call archaic features, which are the features that you would associate with Neanderthals or Homo erectus, you know, the, the, the earlier hominin. Um, so they probably had brow ridges, quite heavy brow ridges. Um, they probably had quite long heads, like the, the Neanderthals, uh, what we call the, the, the occipital uh, bun at the back of the head would have been quite large. Um, so they'd have been, you know, very striking in appearance. Uh, and as I said, we're trying to use all of that evidence now to, to, to create what they look like. So, so, so far we've got that they were, they were incredibly tall, they would look striking, they were incredibly advanced. Um, they made jewellery, they possibly rode horses, they had uh, very advanced stone tool technologies that influenced our own ancestors. Uh, and what I forgot to mention is that they created the earliest musical instruments in the world. Um, This comes in the form of a a flute or a whistle, or the fragments of which were found in the Denisovan layer of the um, the Denisovan cave. Um, And this tells us that they had an understanding, they listened to music, they they understood it, and that they could create musical notes by you know, inventing musical instruments. 
Uh, now, there is one possible Neanderthal um, whistle that was found in Eastern Europe. Um, I can't remember the exact country, but it's one of the Eastern Europe. There's a place called Divja, and uh, that's disputed. Some people, uh, some academics say that this was, this is a natural, uh, just a bone that the whole, you know, possibly a dog has gnawed into and created holes. Um, you know, this may or may not be the case, but the, certainly the oldest confirmed instrument is one that would seem to have been made by the Denisovans. So, you know, you add that to your list as well. And what's interesting is that the legends to do with the area of um, the Altai Mountains, where the Denisova Cave is, talk about the giants inventing a lot of things. It talks about them creating the first stone monument, the first building. Uh, it talks about them building the first bridges, the first irrigation. Um, it talks about them creating the first musical instruments, just like you know we know that the Denisovans did. Uh, and I find this is all, you know, this is all too coincidental. Uh, to me, the stories of the giants in this area very much relate to the presence of the Denisovans in the past. I, I'm pretty certain of that. And, you know, somebody, a sceptic might say, well, hold, hold on, how can you say that people that, by your own admission, disappeared 40 to 45,000 years ago, how can you say that people will remember these stories, particularly when we know about movements, migrations of peoples and whatever across vast distances? How can you know that, that the ancestors of the current day Siberians were even in that, you know, were even in that era a thousand years ago? Well, I can't. But what I do know is that the myth, the creation myth or the cosmogonic myth of these sort of people, in other words, the myths relating to their origins, you know, their gods, their goddesses, their deities, their ancestors, who came before them, they would have preserved them across countless generations. You know, it's only us in the last thousand years ago that have decided to commit everything to paper, you know, or obviously uh, in digital form in, in, the, in the modern day so that we can forget it easily. In the past, you would have had what we refer to over here, you know, amongst the, bar the Welsh people as bards, you know, these storytellers, people that would have been able to recite tales and stories and myths that would go on for hours and would have complex names of all the ancestors in them. And, you know, the people would have to memorize this. And we know that there are still storytellers in this region that tell these same myths. To, to die so you know the chances are they've been doing that for 40,000 years I have no problem with accepting that as a case so the, the the fact that you're listening to stories about giants who lived in this area perhaps 45,000 years ago to me doesn't mean anything I mean you know this this to me is well, I'm just not in the case it doesn't mean anything it, 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 this is normal this is normal and uh, I have no problem with that at all. So, I mean, I mean that's it really. But beyond that, as far as the Denisovans are concerned, um, I think the big question is what impact did they have on civilization? And I would say that via their descendants, these Denisovan hybrid human descendants, 
I would say a lot, everything, to be honest. And that's going to be really difficult for some people to grasp. But for one simple reason, up till this time, we've had three options about how we developed our own civilization. The archaeologists' view is that it was a very slow, gradual process of independent invention across the entire world. You know, whether it be in the Americas, whether it be on the Eurasian continent or in Africa or anywhere else. Um, that's their view. However, the two other views are one, that civilization was given a kickstart by aliens, you know, the, the whole ancient aliens or ancient astronauts theory, or that our civilization was kickstarted by survivors from Atlantis. You know, certainly as far as, as, as Europe and uh, the East Coast of America is concerned, some people look in terms of Lemuria uh, or Mu in the Pacific, uh, that, you know, you had these huge great mother civilizations that were obliterated in some cataclysm, uh, just as Plato tells us that Atlantis was destroyed and that survivors went on to found new civilizations that rose up thereafter. This is a theory which was first propagated in the late 19th century by a guy called Ignatius Donnelly, who was the, a U.S. congressman uh, and writer, brilliant man, some, you know, he's written brilliant books, and he was the first one that suggested that Atlantis was the mother civilization of our own civilizations, whether they be in um, the Western world, Babylon, uh, you know, Egypt, Indus Valley, etc., etc., or those of America, most obviously, you know, the Maya, the Aztecs, uh, the Inca, uh, and many others as well in both continents. Now, those have been your options up till this time, but what I'm putting on the plate is a new option. Uh, that is that we inherited the rudiments of civilization from a type of human species, if, if that's the term, subspecies, if you want, that existed and coexisted with our earliest ancestors. And because we learned from them, either because through interbreeding, because obviously, you know, uh, we interbreed with them, children are produced, that the children are going to listen to their parents, um, you know, whether they're Denisovan or whether they're modern human, you know, or indeed Neanderthal. I mean, obviously, th th there, there was, you have to throw them into the mix as well, because we know that the Denisovans interbred with them, and we know that our own ancestors interbred with, with the Neanderthals. And we know that there were hybrids of all of these. You know, they, bone, one bone was found um, uh, in the Denisova cave that was primarily Neanderthal, but it also had modern human. DNA, it also had Denisovan DNA, and it had a fourth type of modern, of, sorry, of, of archaic human in it as well, which we don't even know what that is. I mean, it could be Homo erectus, could be, you know, one of the other early types of hominin that, that disappeared, we don't know. So, in other words, they were all doing it, and they were all interbreeding. So, you know, out of this comes this acceleration of you know, of, of, of what we call human behavior or innovations 
that are innovations that will help start civilization at the end of the last ice age. And the chances are that the civilizations that we know in places like Egypt and Samaria, Babylon, Indus Valley, you know, Peru, et cetera, et cetera, they would have risen a lot earlier if it had not been for a major cataclysm that took place around 12,800 years ago. It was a comet impact event, um, hundreds and thousands of fragments of a comet entered the atmosphere, created wildfires that burnt for years, sent up a cloud of ash that blotted out the sun and the moon, creating a nuclear winter. Um, the fallout of that rained down on the world, creating a thick layer, about 10 centimetres, about three or four inches or more of, um, of, of ash that has been found virtually all over the world. Uh, recently it was found in South Africa. Um, it's found recently in, in a pond in South Carolina. I just put the story out about that today. It's in Australia. It's in Europe. It's in the Middle East. Um, it's in, I think it's in Java. Um, and all of these places tell us very clearly that there was a nuclear winter. This reduced the temperature, creating a mini ice age that lasted for 1,200 years and only came to an end around 12, sorry, 9,600 BC, which is the time both when Gobekli Tepe was built, but also it was the time that Plato tells us that Atlantis was destroyed. Now, whether Atlantis existed and whether it was destroyed at that time, we can't know, really, until we find Atlantis, if it indeed exists. But what we can say is that Plato was on the ball with that date, because that's certainly the end point of all of these terrible cataclysms. So he was, he was definitely on to something and definitely was getting information that was correct. So that's it, really. I mean, uh, in a nutshell, that's what the Denisovans are. That's the impact that they, that they had on us. And we're still trying to find out stuff. Now, I mean, you know, clearly we've we, we got very little anatomical evidence of their existence, very few fossils of them. I mean, everything that we found so far, you could cup in one in two hands. You know, a jawbone, a couple of fragments of a skull, three teeth, uh, one, one finger bone, um, and a few uh, other bones which are hybrids. I mean, one, one bone that they found in the Denisovan cave was a father of a Denisovan, and the mother was a Neanderthal. Um, but that's it. That's, that's all we've got. But we can infer a lot. I mean, people write to me, or they post on Facebook or something and say, how can you make so much out of so few bones? Uh, and uh, the answer is that we can, that there's, like, there's a paper trail that comes from those bones, which is both genetic uh, and also material culture. We can see what was going on in the layer of occupation of the Denisovans and see what impact that had, had in other parts of the world. Now, the other thing which is, popular just this week i did a, an article 
that was published just yesterday on this very subject is that new evidence has come out suggesting that the Denisovans passed on to us genes that relate to autism. Um, in other words, those people today on the autistic spectrum, uh, some of whom, anything up to 10%, can have savant skills, you know, these, these very strange abilities, which are you know, incredibly creative to do with music, to do with art, uh, to do with construction, to do with um, um, calendar counting, lightning uh, calculations, you know, things like this, um, that it may well be that the Denisovans had these before us and that at least some of their number were autistic um, and had these savant skills. And if that's the case, then it gives us a possible solution as to why they advanced much quicker than their rivals at that time. Now, those rivals, as we've mentioned, Neanderthals, there was still some Homo erectus kicking around. Um, obviously, there were anatomical modern humans already there, already doing their thing. Um, and yet the Denisovans would seem to have uh, gained this uh, advanced sophistication. And it may well be linked with, with autism. I mean, I suggested this as early as 2018 in my book, The Cygnus Key. Uh, that talks very much about this. But now we have more evidence. That evidence has just come out in the past few days. I mean, for those that are interested, uh, go on to Ancient Origins uh, website uh, and just, you know, look in the news section. You'll see my article that was just put up in the last day. So um, this is very important um, because, you know, you have to ask questions about why the Denisovans were so advanced. What, what, you know, what made them different to anybody else who was living, let's say, 45,000 years ago? You know, well, living in there, a world. <clears throat> Sorry, go Weren't on. there other tendencies as well that they passed on that, that were quite phenomenal? Um, the high altitude and the cold being two Well, of that's them. it. You see that, yeah, absolutely. You see, we know that their genes went into various modern populations. Some, like the Papua New Guinea people uh, in island Southeast Asia, they have anything up to 4 to 6% Denisovan DNA, or ancestry as they call it. Um, the Han Chinese, they've got anything up to 3% uh, Denisovan DNA. Many peoples in South India uh, have Denisovan DNA. But what comes with this is these genes. I mean, what are these genes? What genes are they passing on to us? And we know, for instance, that the Tibetans have a gene called EPAS1, E-P-A-S-1, that regulates their hemoglobin levels so that they can exist in uh, very high altitudes where there is very little oxygen. Um, and this was inherited from the Denisovans. 
So this tells us something about the difference. It tells us that they must also have lived, as we now know that they did anyway, in extremely high altitudes like the Tibetan Plateau, which is you know, one of the, 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 the highest areas of, of occupation in the world. So we know that that was the case. But we also know that the Inuit people of Greenland, they have two genes that allow them to bulk up and to live and exist in extremely cold environments, you know, as clearly they, they do today. These two genes also came from the Denisovans. So that also tells us that the Denisovans, who obviously developed these genes across tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of years, must also have lived in extremely cold conditions. Um, for, for them to have had these genes and to have passed them on to us. So that also tells us something interesting about their mindsets, because why would they want to live very high up and also in very cold conditions? Well, one thing we know about those people who are on the autistic spectrum is that their communication and language skills are limited. And this often forces them into isolated situations where, you know, they don't interact um, in society quite as well as they, they should do. So is it possible that this is one of the reasons why the Denisovans would seem to have probably kept themselves to themselves for as long as possible, you know, living in, in isolation, small groups, probably small family groups, and not creating huge you know civilizations like like we know it they probably had enclaves they probably lived on mountains they probably they could even have built structures on the top of mountains or on plateaus or whatever um i say that why would i say that because i'm basing this on stories and legends to do with the giants in the area of, of the altai region where you have these stories about the giants creating the, the first houses the first buildings um, and I do believe that is, is the case. I do think that the Denisovans did create stone structures. We haven't found them yet because, firstly, we don't know. We, you know, we, we can't connect anything that we discover from that age directly with them unless bones are found at the same location. Um, you know, or, let's say, stone tools that are so um, what they call diagnostic, in other words, easily identifiable, that we could say, yes, that was definitely done by a Denisovan. We can't say that yet. So we can't truly identify, let's say, a building structure or, or a foundation that dates back to that period. In, you know, I mean, I'm saying even if we found it. But I do believe that we will one day find that evidence. But beyond that is that this autistic connection tells us that they must, their, their brains would have thought in a different way. Um, and if you look at the most common savant skill known today, that is calendar counting. Calendar counting is where if you ask, um, you know, a savant uh, what day of the week, let's say the 25th of June 2054 is going to fall, they'll say Tuesday or whatever it is. 
Um, but, you know, this is, this is something which doesn't just work for, you know, a few decades. There, is, there were two twins, or sorry, you know, a pair of twins uh, who were both savants, and they could tell you the day of the week projecting 40,000 years into the future and 40,000 years into the past. And bear in mind that doing it into the past is an awful lot more difficult than projecting it forward because obviously we've had so many calendar changes. Um, But, you know, but here's the thing. I've read quite a lot about savants now because, you know, I want to try and see who they are, what they are, you know, tell me about their skills, tell me about their abilities. How can I link that with people like the Denisovans or our own early ancestors? And here's something really important. The idea of calendar counting probably had a functional use in the past and that it revolved around the movements of the sun and the moon and the memorising of their cycles Um, and this would also have included uh, eclipse cycles and this is you know this this is something that that experts on um, on on savants are you know that's what they say themselves now this is really really important because one of the areas of first contact with the Denisovans is Mongolia, uh, which is just to the to the to the east, really east of east and south of Siberia. Um, and there's a site in northern Mongolia, just south of the huge inland sea, known as uh, Lake Baikal, called Tolbar. Uh, in particular, uh, a site known as, as Tolbar 16. And the occupational layers go back to the earliest modern humans in the area, which they believe was probably 40 to 45,000 years ago. And they found at the very bottom of this, of you know, these, these different layers of occupation, at the very earliest point, the same tools that you get in the Denisova cave, in the Denisova, in the Denisovan, I'm saying it myself now, the Denisovan <laughs> layer, and I got it wrong myself there. And um, I feel and better. <laughs> so, what? Yeah, I mean, what the archaeologists are now suggesting, and this is exactly what I suggested in my book, the, the Cygnus Key in 2018, and we also suggest again in Denisovan Origins, is that it was at places like Tolbar that we learned the stone tool technologies of the Denisovans, uh, so that we were then able to pass that on by teacher to pupil from that point onwards. Uh, you know, and this includes this microblade, microblade technology, um, the pressure flaking, all the rest of it. And so that's in northern Mongolia, <clears throat> to the south of Lake Bakau. Well, just to the west of Lake Bakau, there's another upper Paleolithic site there called Malta. Um, and Malta is a very, very important place. I mean, not only is there incredible advanced uh, objects, carved objects of swans and 
mother, what appears to be mother goddesses and the rest of it, been found there. But a very strange mammoth ivory plaque was discovered. Now, this dates back to 24,000 years ago. That's how old it is. And on one side, incised onto it, are three uh, snakes. And on the other side is seven spirals, the largest one being in the middle. Now, when you look at this, you, you, you look at it and you think, well, that's aesthetically pleasing. You know, obviously you've got the, 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 um, the snakes on one side and the nice spirals on the other, and there's a hole pierced through the centre of it as well. And it was a Russian archaeologist by the name of Antole uh, Larachev who were started to realise that these spiral patterns were in specific number sequences. And he realised that they related to the cycles of the sun and the moon and eclipse cycles, in particular the 54-year triple saros cycle. Now, this information is very interesting because what's generated by these number these cyclic number sequences that come from the movement of the sun and the moon and eclipses are numbers that we find again and again in legends mythologies uh, sacred literature uh, in ancient king lists uh, and in the design and geometry of sacred architecture all over Southeast Asia, places like Angkor Wat in Cambodia and Moro Buddha, big temple complex in Java. And these are numbers like 9, 54, 72, 108, 216, 432. All of these numbers are generated by the same numbers that, are, that appear on the multi plates, as we call it. And this is really interesting. Why would the people of 24,000 years ago have been getting into this at that time? And I believe that it was something that was inherited by the people at Morta from Denisovan human hybrids. Now, we can't say that there were any of them actually at Malta itself at the moment because we certainly haven't checked any of the DNA on the bones that have been found there looking for Denisovans yet. It, it's almost certainly going to be there, almost certainly. Um, but what we can speculate here is that this understanding, almost obsessional understanding of, of number sequences comes from the memorization of the sun and the moon, its movements and its relationship to eclipses. And I believe that this is something that the Denisovans developed as a form of primitive calendar counting that was remembered by them and passed on to their hybrid descendants. Wow. And, and I think what, what keeps coming up for me is you know, we have to really start rethinking these people who we have thought of as primitive and, and you know, not intelligent 
to to understanding that that there was great intelligence for among other things survival, and that they had yeah well that yeah that's 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 an important point you know I mean you know, today I, we sit in our houses we have very little threats you know um, other than from each other but um, <laughs> but these people not only were they living in an age where you had constant you know ice ages coming and going but you've also got incredibly dangerous animals around all the time like cave bears saber-toothed tigers uh, mammoths um you know and every other so-called um plasticine megafauna that, that was hanging around in those days you know that, that would want to eat them every day and or just you know certainly uh uh, not not be uh, very happy about them taking away their caves anyway, and <laughs> you know they've got to they've got to fend they, they've got to fend off all of these before making these other incredible advances, and and I mean it's always considered for instance that with the idea of civilization it began after agriculture was discovered. Um, I mean, this was the the belief of uh, prehistorians like um, V. Gordon Child, you know, the very famous not 20th century uh, prehistorian. I mean, his idea was that we were hunter gatherers, and then we weren't. We became, you know, agriculturists. We became, um, you know, um, uh, keepers of animals. You know, animal husbandry, and suddenly we had so much food and so much time on our hands that we sat down and thought, what do we do next? And they invent religion. You know, let, let's give thanks for what we've got. And so they, they create the first temple. So people go and, and join, you know, in communion with whatever gods or goddesses, you know, that they had in mind. Um, and, and with this around these, these temples, infrastructure inevitably builds up and that forms the first towns now that was what golden child believed but we now know that that's completely wrong um because what we now know is that at the end of the last ice age the first thing anybody did was to create what's correctly known as cult buildings but you can call them temples if you want and I think the, the answer as to why they did that is that they so wanted to appease the, you know, the, the supernatural creatures that were seen to be responsible for comet impacts and cataclysms, that they needed to appease them so that they, they created the first what we call monumental architecture in human history, you know, including Gebekli Tepe. And everything then develops around that. The infrastructure builds, you know, more and more people are involved with the management, you know, the, the construction work, etc. Um, and eventually you dry out all of the resources of natural food, you know, like the, you know, the, the game animals and whatever, and you're forced to create agriculture, something that had been hanging around. You know, I mean, agriculture wasn't invented uh, at the end of the last ice age. It had been around for probably tens of thousands of years, um, but it had never really taken off in any big way. You know, a few communities 
played around with it here and there in, in Upper Egypt, for instance. Uh, it was even known in Russia about 30,000 years ago. But it's, you know, it's suddenly realised that this is the solution to feeding everybody. And of course, then lifestyles change. Um, and so, you know, this, this, is, this is how things have, 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 you know, go about. And as far as the Denisovans are concerned, um, I don't think that they developed any massive civilizations. I don't think that they did. Uh, I do think that there were high culture going on that, that would, you know, that would suddenly spring up like flowers opening in different parts of the world at different points, but that they would be relatively isolated and then they would just vanish for whatever reason, whether it be catastrophe, whether it be climate change, uh, whether it be population, uh, you know, diminishing or whatever, um, and then they would just vanish away. Now, whether they were linked with the Denisovans or not, I don't know. Uh, that's something which, yeah, we want to look into because there, there, there are certain X factors here, which, which we still haven't got the answers for. There was at least one other type of hominin kicking around, let's say. 40 to 50,000 years ago. We still don't know who the hell that they were. We don't know how advanced they got, where they were. We just call them Species X at the moment. And um, we don't know what impact they might have had on, on civilization. But certainly the Denisovans had the rudiments of civilization enough for it to be passed on to our ancestors and for us to run with it, quite literally. You know, we, we migrated all over the Eurasian continent with it, and we entered into the Americas, uh, both probably via the Beringia land bridge that divides the Russian Far East with Alaska, uh, and also, almost certainly, they were crossing between uh, Ireland, Southeast Asia, and South America, uh, and probably making landfall using the different ocean currents and um, and uh, winds, uh, prevailing winds, are making landfall in the area of Chile. Um, and I think this is, you know, something that was going on at least as early as 25 to 30,000 years ago, uh, and probably much, much earlier, you know, I mean, literally hundreds of thousands of years ago. Well, I think one of the fascinating things for me, because, you know, when it used to be when you talked antiquity to me, I would think, Greek, Roman, Norse, and, and their gods and goddesses and everything. However, what I think is more fascinating is that those cultures that predated all of that, while they didn't have a religion, they had a cosmology. And, and to be that's honest right. with you, yeah. I think that's more important yeah. than a religion. Well, because I, I mean, religion is, yeah, religion is relatively modern, in all honesty. Um, yeah. It's it, I mean, it probably starts at places like Gebekli Tepe, to be honest. Um, and it, it really begins once we do have agriculture, because every year you are planting seeds and you are relying on the sun and the moon, because obviously some plants are, are you know, are respond to the moon, the lunar cycles. You're, you are, you know, you you have to revere the sun and the moon. And 
what you do is you deify them. You know, you see them as dying and resurrecting gods, you know, like Apis, sorry, not Apis, um, Attis, uh, Adonai, um, and, you know, various other ones that existed in, let's say, the, the, the Middle East, the Near East, etc. And, you know, these are personifications of the sun in its yearly cycle, for instance, obviously the moon in a similar manner, because it becomes now in crucial that you get a good yield of crop, uh, whether it be wheat or whether it be, um, you know, other types of, of, of vegetables used that you know you could eat, um, and this becomes something that that, that you, you don't just revere but literally end up worshiping. And I think that this is how a lot of religion starts and kickstarts. Um, but even back then, I, I think that our idea of religion is, is relatively recent, probably within the last 3,000 years, maybe, 4,000. Yeah. Um, and, you know, and, 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 and this is what annoys me sometimes about people when they look at things like Gebekli Tepe, even the archaeologists, they, they, they look at, uh, at something like Gebekli Tepe and say, oh, well, this must have been somewhere where everybody came together to, to pay their respects to their, their gods once a week or something like that. You think, you're thinking like a Christian. You know, you're thinking that people did the same things back then that you do on a Sunday. But this would not have been the case. You know, somewhere like Gebekli Tepe is, is not a place where everybody gathers on a Sunday morning. It's no. somewhere to change the world. You've, you know, it's somewhere quite literally that you can stop, you know, cataclysms taking place. That's what they were used for. They were used as points of access into the sky world. I mean, you know, you can almost call them sky gates, basically. That's what they are, the sky, sky gates. You know, I mean, I, Stargate I have... gives too much of a, of a, yeah, sorry, I, a, a, I, um, I, go on, sorry, Barbara. No, I, I have a question about Gobekli Tepe. Um, okay. It was created 9,000 some years ago. Um, uh, well, 11,600 it was created. Okay, okay. <laughs> Long time ago. What was yeah. the geography of the land at that time? Because it's right now in the middle of a lot of sand. Um, was yes, the true. geography was the geography different so that there there you know there was vegetation and stuff like that around it or or what has it always been yeah. sand? Well, I would I would see it probably if you were let's say to go to a much more northerly latitude and try and match the climate then I'd probably say if you went to somewhere like Russia, somewhere like Moscow today, that's probably how weather would have been in and around Gebekli Tepe. Uh, in other words, it would have been warm in the summer, but in the winter, I think it would have been really, really bad. And during the time of the Younger Dryas, uh, which obviously, you know, had just finished, I, I think that yeah. it would have almost have been Arctic conditions in the the winter and what's so interesting is that not that far away from Gebekli Tepe 
you have all the underground cities of Cappadocia. And, I mean, you know, these are places where thousands of people could have remained for long periods of time. Uh, not lived there. I do not believe people lived in these underground cities because it just doesn't make sense. Because you know, obviously, people need to go to the bathroom and all the rest of it. I mean, it just, yeah. you know, it, it it would be very messy very quickly. But um, I do believe that they were constructed at the end of the last ice age, during the time of the Younger Dry, so that people could get out of the cold. Um, and that, uh, you know, that you will find eventually, well, I mean, there's already evidence been found that at least some of these underground cities do go back to that age and that they were, you know, they were quite literally burrowed out of the, the, the soft volcanic tufa rock at that time so that people could escape, you know, I mean, and they would just create, um, you know, uh, a level beneath the ground. They would they would stay in there and they would come out to hunt or go to the uh-huh. toilet or whatever they were doing, and that's that's what these earliest ones were created. So it would have been very cold. Uh, I think after the younger Dryas finished around 9,600 when Quebec the Tepe uh, is founded, the weather would have got a lot better. I mean the the the, the, the spring, summer, the autumn would have been, you know, as I said similar to, to probably about the latitude of, of Moscow, I'd say, today. Um, but I'm just trying to figure out winters, who built it. The winters it. were still... Who built it? Well, I mean, okay. I know. I think I know who built it. But I think the listener needs to think, well, what was going on at that time? Now, clearly there would have been local people. You know, I mean, they were known as the Natufian people. They were in the the, the, the Levantine, the Levant corrid, corridor. You know, places like Lebanon, um, yeah. Syria, uh, Palestine, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, these were the Natufian people. They'd been around for ten, fifteen thousand years. Um, but there were other, more mountain-based cultures that were existing in southeast um, uh, Turkey. Anatolia, as it's correctly known, uh, like the Zazian peoples, um, they they existed at that time, and there's no question that they were involved in the building of Gebekli Tepe. But I do not believe that they kick-started it; that they were the founders. What I believe is that the incredibly cold weather north of the Black Sea and the Caspian Sea was forcing people south across the Caucasus mountains or around them which are squeezed between those two great seas, the Black Sea and the Caspian Sea and of course they end up coming into Anatolia which is directly beneath the Caucasus and this is where they would have ended up and the main people who I believe were responsible for the building are known as the Swiderians. Um, they were incredibly advanced culture that existed between the Ural Mountains in the east, which was almost certainly their original homeland, and the Caspian, sorry, the Carpathian Mountains in the west, in countries like Poland, Romania, possibly Hungary. And 
they were long distance traders. They would travel hundreds of miles with exotic minerals to make stone tools. It seems as if that they, they, they would move from community to community. They would probably be trading with those communities uh, and trying to probably gain some kind of foothold in them. They were amongst the earliest uh, miners. They, they created some of the earliest mines in Poland. Um, they were a very shamanic-based culture. They would seem to have been very strongly into um, certain totems like the swan, for instance, um, and probably the wolf, it would seem. And they had their own cosmology, their own cosmogony. That seemed to revolve around the Milky Way and constellations like Cygnus, particularly seeing Cygnus as the ultimate point of entry into the sky world. And, you know, they came into Anatolia. They found the local people. How that went down, I don't know. The chances are there probably would have been skirmishes and battles, but they would seem to have taken control and I think that they initiated the creation of Gobekli Tepe, probably because the local people were still in fear of cataclysms taking place. And these new people came in and said, look, we can fix this. We can sort it out. We have the skills and the knowledge to tell you how to do it. But in return, we want you to create these structures. And that's how the T-shaped pillars in the different enclosures at Gobekli Tepe came into being. And, I mean, people have looked towards those pillars at Gobekli Tepe and said, you know, this knowledge must have come from somewhere. I mean, it, it didn't just, they, the people just didn't invent this style. And right. Yes, that's true. I think you will find that it came from the north. It came from what is today Russia and eastwards as far as the Ural Mountains. In fact, there have been wooden, um, like totem pole-like idols, like the Shigia idol found in the middle Urals, that the style and the date have been linked with Gebekli Tepe. Um, so it's not just me saying this. I mean, others are saying it as well. I mean, I, I said all this as far back as 2014 in my book, um, Gebekli Tepe, Genesis of the Gods. But mainstream archaeologists are now coming up and saying the same thing. So, so you're talking about local people being involved with the actual building construction at Gebekli Tepe. But I believe that there was an elite involved and that they came from the north, and almost certainly they were connected with the Swedirian peoples. We can also tell that that's the case because the stone tools that start to be used around the time of the construction of Gebekli Tepe is a blade tool technology which is known to have been gradually moving westwards from the Ural Mountains. So that, and, and we know that, that the Swedirians were involved with the carrying of these particular stone technologies so uh, you know I, I, I think that's a, um, it's a good way of thinking and also the other important thing is the fact that a lot of this technology was coming in waves from beyond the Urals 
in Western Siberia and whatever tells us, tells me at least, that these are very late waves of technologies that originated with the Swiderians. Sorry, the, the Denisovans. God, I get confused myself now. Um, with, with the Denisovans and is passed on through these different cultures until eventually they end up in Southwest Asia and Anatolia at places like Gebekli Tepe. I mean, I can understand if if it's Denisovan because of the intricacy of the carvings on especially the oldest of the pillars, because that seems to be right. so so intricate and so precise. It reminds me of the hieroglyphs, um, the Egyptian hieroglyphs that are carved in stone, because it, it feels as though there's such precision here. You know, it goes back to that bracelet you were saying. I could see if they had a drill of some sort that it would have been fairly easy for them to carve the animals on some of those pillars with the um, accuracy that they did. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, there has been some experimental archaeology done on creating those pillars. And to be honest, um, you know, you can you can do a good animal carving in a couple of days. I mean, that's that's not in doubt. And I don't think it's a case of, you know, you you would have needed some really special technology to do it. it it's more a case of carving of stone pillars like that. Where does that knowledge come from? And prior to this time, the the I mean, other than a couple a couple of 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 roof supports that have a certain amount of carving on that date to maybe just a few hundred years earlier in northern Syria. Um, aside from those, the only other culture that that carved reliefs like that prior to the age of Gebekli Tepe is the Salutrian peoples of southwest Europe. They were creating what we would call standing stones or menhirs with carved images of animals like, um, you know, uh, bulls and uh, horses and stuff like this, um, as far back as 16,000, 17,000 BC. But there is no direct link between the Salutrians and, let's say, Gebekli Tepe, but there is an indirect link. And that indirect link is the same link with the Swiderians, because the Swiderians and Salutrians both come from a much earlier culture called the Eastern Gravatian peoples. And they existed between about 30 to 35,000 years ago down to about 20,000 years ago. Um, and you know, with, with, with some, some variation of them continuing uh, right the way through until the time of the Swiderians. And you know, if you wanted to create like this sort of branches of a tree, you know, one of the first branches of, 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 the, of the Gravatians is, is the Salutrians. Another branch is the Swiderians, and it's the Swiderians that end up going into uh, Anatolia and creating Gebekli Tepe. The much earlier Salutrians are going across Europe in waves and end up in southwest Europe. Um, but all of them, I think, are carrying Denisovan, the Denisovan legacy with them. You know, in stone tool technology... The Salutrians, for instance, use bone needles identical to those that the Denisovans were using. And in fact, you can actually trace the invention of 
stone, bone, sorry, bone needles right the way from the Denisova Cave as a wave gradually moving westwards until it reaches southwest Europe with the Salutrians. It was also going eastwards as well into China, into the Russian Far East as a wave. Um, and yeah, you can see it. It's easy. I mean, I, I did it in the latest book in Denisovan Oranges. I show the, you know, the route that it takes. Now, if you put this information in front of an archaeologist, they'll deny the lot. They'll say it's all rubbish. As far as they're concerned, they talk about something called independent invention. So what this means is if you've got the Salutrians with um, needles, if you've got the Eastern Gravatian peoples who were there you know, just before them in, let's say, Russia, and you know, you've got some other people with bone needles in Southwest Asia, for instance, as Asians had bone needles, They'll say that this is all a matter of independent uh, invention. All of them invented it on their own in isolation. They cannot handle the idea of migrations over long distances. It's just anathema in in anthropology, archaeology. Um, They just just won't handle it. And the the only thing that's, that's completely overturning all this is the subject of paleo um, genetics basically Uh, in other words DNA nuclear DNA mitochondrial DNA um, and the the mutations and the progress and the development of that DNA across you know tens of thousands if not hundreds of thousands of years that can tell you the movement of human populations and this is beginning to make to force the anthropologists and the archaeologists to rethink the idea of independent um, invention but you know it's uh, and if you ask me why they think this way well a they're stubborn and b they don't want to uh, be seen to be promoting the ideas of people coming from one area into another and bashing people on the head and taking over because that is seen as racist. Um, You know, because obviously those sort of ideas were abused by, you know, the Nazis in Germany in the Second World War. Um, Of course, they abused the whole subject of physical anthropology um, and it, that, became, that became a dirty subject, really, until, you know, so maybe in the last 20 years it, it's had a revival. But up to that time, it was, you know, you could almost not study human physiology and see it in terms of, of different cultures, move, sorry, not cultures, different types of people. You know, in fact, it's still a touchy subject. I mean, in all honesty, I've been called um, a racist and a white supremacist simply for touching on these subjects in my books. Really? I mean, it's just, it's just stupid. Yeah, I mean, to be honest, I mean, it really hurt me um, when, it, when, you know, when, when it first came out because, you know, you look at what you've written and you think, you know, what, what is it that, that make them, makes them think this way? And the answer is the sheer fact that you're dealing with the idea of the migrations of people 
or you're dealing with certain areas. I mean, it's like Siberia. Um, the idea that civilization may have come out of the area of Mongolia or Siberia is something that was first suggested in the 19th century by the founder of the Theosophical Society, um, Madame Blavatsky. Um, yeah, I mean, you well, know, I mean, she wrote some really interesting books, obviously The Secret Doctrine, uh, books like that. But the problem is that the Nazis adopted uh, theories by the Theosophical Society, including the idea that civilization could be looked for in either Central Asia, places like Tibet, uh, or in Mongolia uh, or Siberia, and would send out people, you know, just in a sort of true Indiana Jones style, um, to, to try and verify some of these claims, you know, with monasteries and things like that. Um, so to resurrect that idea that civilization may have its roots in Siberia or Mongolia is racist. So, you know, well, oh, that's, you, that's, what, that's what the skeptics would say. Aren't you fighting, though, really the same battle that archaeologists uh, in the 1800s fought? You know, it, it's kind of like Clovis first, and nothing comes beyond Clovis. And, you know, it, it takes archaeologists or, or the powers that be a great deal of time to understand that, that, that the theory they've been operating under is now old-fashioned and predated, and therefore you have to make room for new theories that are more accurate and more in tune with what actually happened. That's true. And, I mean, obviously we've not even touched on America yet, have we? Because, you know, people will be saying, were the Denisovans in America? Well, there are various tribes, um, even though that you're not supposed to call them tribes anymore, but um, various peoples, First Nations, um, you know, who were themselves uh, almost certainly descendants of Denisovans because they got Denisovan DNA. Uh, not much. It's not a huge amount. But uh, tribal peoples like um, the Ojibwa uh, and their neighbours, the Cree, have got um, the potential of anything up to 3% um, DNA of Denisovans. Various South American tribes, most obviously one called the Surai, uh, S-U-R-U-I, uh, who are in the northwest Amazon region, um, you know, what is Brazil, but very close to the corners of, of um, Peru and Bolivia, that sort of area, not Bolivia, um, Colombia, um, they've got some. Um, and there are various other peoples that have it in very small amounts uh, in Central you know, America, think, in South America. The I think before we go... In, um, sorry, go on. Yeah, but before we go too far into this, I really, really, really... Um, most people today have done um, either 23andMe or, or the DNA through Ancestry.com or another place, and most people really have an idea. Is to, they know what their mitochondrial DNA is, and yeah. if you if you are looking for a link or a connection to um, the Denisians in in your Denisovans. own Denisovans. <clears throat> you know, yeah. we, 
we, we have to name them something else. It's just so hard. Um, if you're looking to see well, if we, you we have call a them the Denny's. Yeah. The Denny's? Yeah, sorry, go on. That the, I can the do. The Denny's, yeah. We generally call them the Denny's. So, okay. Well, that, that I can that's do. That's our nickname for them. Right. So if you're we'll looking Dennis, to see if then, you no. – Denny's, okay. If you're looking to see if yeah. you have the DNA that, that, that would identify you as having it in your, in your mitochondrial DNA, yeah. um, you're looking for haplogroup X. And uh, if no. you happen – no? No. What no, are you no, looking no, for? No. I mean, that, that's something slightly different. Um, I mean, oh, okay. haplogroup X is – one of the what they call haplogroups of um, of mitochondrial DNA. Mitochondrial DNA is the bacteria in our bodies. I mean, we, we all have bacteria that's passed on um, because it's useful. You know, it, 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 they're like workers um, within the cells um, from mother to child, and it's always passed on, or considered to be always passed on, through the female line. So, in other words you know, mother to child, and if it's female, then obviously it will be passed on as mother to child again. Um, yeah. Now, the thing about that is that mitochondrial DNA mutates at a fairly regular rate. Um, and so you can see what it, what it is. You can, you, can, um, you can check what it was and what it will be, and you can then link that or join that together with the mutation as it's seen elsewhere, and you can gradually build up a picture of these this this whole like branches of a tree out from a single root of mitochondrial DNA, which they call mitochondrial Eve, you know, as in Adam and Eve, um, uh-huh. who's considered to be you know a hypothetical woman in Africa, um, and all of these different branches of mitochondrial. DNA go out from there. Now you have group A, B, C, D. In fact, you get all the way to Z now. But at a very early stage, they came across one they they didn't quite understand, so they just called it X, and that's become the most enigmatic of them all. Um, and it's got a you know a very appropriate name, haplogroup X, because here's the thing. It's found in various Native American tribes, um, including, uh, you know, human uh, individuals that go back at least 10,000 years that the skeletal remains have been found. Now, so we know it's been in America for at least 10,000 years. Uh, I mean, the the bog people of of Florida, for instance, that you know they they had haplogroup X and they date to about three to four thousand BC as far as I recall. Um, Kennewick man, I think um, that's found on the shores of a, a river in oh god, I can't remember which state it was now, but somewhere in the west coast of of, of the United States. Got haplogroup X, but but there is no haplogroup X in the eastern side of the Eurasian continent. No. The closest that there is some is in the area of the Altai Mountains, where the Denisovans were. But, I mean, that may or may not be connected. But it is found in Europe, and it is found 
on the Mediterranean coast. You know, in places like, um, you know, Lebanon, um, it's there, Palestine, that sort of area. But it's the Hapla Group X that's found in Europe that everybody's got their eyes focused on because they're in the very areas where the Salutrians were. Now, the Salutrians lived between 15,000 BC and 20,000 BC. So they were around in their full flight, even though there was a proto-Salutrian culture before them, for about 5,000 years. They created the most beautiful um, stone points of the Upper Neolithic, sorry, the Upper Paleolithic Age. They look like the Swarovski crystals of their day. They're so beautiful. Uh But here's the thing. Their points or points that are identical, more or less identical to them, have been found in what is today the United States, particularly in the area of the Chesapeake Bay area. Why there? Because in the last ice age, the ice flows, or, you know, the ice sheets, and ice flows came all the way down the Atlantic, reaching right the way across the latitudes from the area of the Bay of Biscay in what is today Spain, right the way across to Chesapeake Bay. And wow. the so-called Salutrian hypothesis is that some of those Salutrian peoples got in boats and, you know, probably to start with, they just used them to go to offshore islands. But then very gradually, they used the, the ice flows, you know, to go from place to place, probably trying to hunt different animals like, you know, maybe seals, maybe uh, penguins, stuff like that. Um, and then very gradually moving their way until they reached the North American continent. Uh, now, this is a big controversial subject because the problem is that the idea that Europeans, and I say, the, I, you know, I use that term loosely when I'll come back to, reached America possibly even before Native American peoples coming in from Asia, who were clearly of a different skin colour, has been seized upon by white supremacists to say that white people were in America first. That's the way that it's been, you know, perceived. Well, that's obviously very sad if the, if the archaeological evidence is there. But what I say in my section of Denisovan Origins is that all of the evidence points towards the Salutrians having started their journey as far east as Mongolia and thus Siberia. And if that's the case, then they were Asian. In other words, they were Asian. You know, if you wanted to label them, they were more Asian than than, than what they were, you know, Caucasian European. And I find that, you know, certainly ironic in a way that you have two types of Asian people coming into North America, one from, obviously, you know, the Russian Far East, from Beringia probably, um, and others coming across from Europe, you know, via places like Spain and France uh, and 
and coming into that and carrying with them Group X. That's the important thing. And there have been papers written, I cite them, that talks about the presence of Group X, not just within Solutrians, but also, or, you know, linking it with the Solutrians, um, and that uh, it's also found in amongst Native American peoples today, you know, particularly, as I said, the, um, the Ojibwa uh, who have got Group X and the Cree. And here's the interesting fact to, to do with that. The, the two tribes with the highest amount of Denisovan DNA is the Ojibwa and the Cree. The two highest tribe with Group X is the Ojibwa and the Cree. That cannot be coincidence. So, you know, to me, wherever they got their Group X was the same place that they got their Denisovan DNA. I, I, I think that that becomes obvious. And what I say is I'm pretty certain that the Salutrians were carrying with them, because of their Asian origin, so, at least some Denisovan DNA. And even though this has now been watered out of Europe, you know, because there is almost no Denisovan DNA in Europe at all, the only people that have got Denisovan DNA are the Finns. Uh, they've got a very small amount, and the reason why they've got it is because they have up to 6% Asian ancestry. You know, in other words, they came from beyond the Ural Mountains in what's, you know, they're probably Siberian North, Northern Asia as, as a whole, and entered into Northern Europe at some point in the past, carrying Denisovan DNA. But they're the only ones. It's not been found anywhere else. But having said that, and you were talking about 23andMe, well, here's the thing. Some of these companies will tell you if you have Denisovan DNA. But some of them don't. I don't think 23andMe does. The one that I know did, but unfortunately has now closed its doors, is the NAT National Geographic Genome Project. They gave you your readout of um, you know, mitochondrial DNA, etc., and that would tell you whether you had a percentage of Neanderthal and or Denisovan DNA in you, um, or heritage, ancestry, I should say. And uh-huh. that's now closed. But there is another one, and I can't remember which one it is, I'm afraid. Um, you'd have to check online because some of them don't do it. They just, it's just, you know, they just don't do it. I don't know why. I just, I'll, presumably they haven't got access to the database um, that, has the information about the Denisovans in them. So, but well, I mean, among other, yeah. among other things, I mean, sure. I would I would want to check, you know, um, certainly the autistic families to see if you know there was that. Well, that, oh God, there's so much can be done. I mean, the, the, the trouble is that all of this is so brand new. Um, I mean, these theories are coming out by the month. Uh, I mean, as I said, I did this article on autism and uh, Denisovans just yesterday. Uh, I mean, it's been in the air, but the evidence, the actual genetic evidence, is is has only been available for about a month, so or even less probably. But you know, we're 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 trying to work this out all the time. And yes, it would be a great project for somebody 
to start looking at the relationship between autism and Denisovan DNA, and not just Denisovan DNA, but also Neanderthals. And the reason I say that is because so far, those same genes relating to autism have not been found in connection with Neanderthals. And that's very, very telling and very interesting. You know, why is it that only the Denisovans have them? And why is it that we've got them? You well, know, you I mean, know, obviously just... we can say that some of them go on. I mean, there there are there are definitely perks to the Denisovan. I mean, the immunity, the the um, to you know certain. Um, that's true. Certain, yeah, yeah, that's right. Certain areas. Because, I mean, it, it, yeah, I mean, there is a certain immunity to to certain di- diseases uh, relating to genes that have been passed from the Denisovans. That is correct. Uh, I seem to recall that that is. Uh, a study that was done in connection with the, the Han Chinese, um, that, that some of their genes that they've inherited from the Denisovans relate to immunity. Um, but, yeah, I mean, it'd be a great, great project to do. I think it, and it, it will be done in the future. I think that particularly when, when people who study sub-ants uh, and, and those on the autistic spectrum uh, start realising there may be a link themselves with the Denisovans, I think that's when, when you'll start getting some proper research done into this. Up to at the moment, you know, there's there's just very little um, you know, very very little done on, on, on this subject, I'm afraid. Yeah, and you know, I, I'm an ex special ed teacher and and to me, just all of this information about autism, among other things, suggests to me that that those who suffer from autism probably have uh, a quality of genius in on some aspect of their life and rather than you know treating them though as though they are you know um, burdens on society look for where that genius is and help them to develop it well exactly exactly I mean the problem is is that we encounter you know autistic people and their mannerisms, their actions, the way that they deal with things are unusual to us. So we tend to um, want to walk away from that because it, you know, it, we, we, we feel that we can't handle it. Um, and I think this has been one of the problems that, um, that you know, we've tended to, you know, as you say, you know, isolate them ourselves i mean obviously until relatively recently they would have been put in asylums i mean a lot of the early yeah. savants actually lived in asylums i mean you know their abilities were recognized and they would be let out for anything like concert tours or make you know shows whether they're whether that whether they performed as musicians or uh, as inventors or creators of of you know things like model boats and stuff like this which some of them did i mean but the problem is, is that you then put them back in the, the, the asylums and then forgot about them. Um, today, obviously, we don't think that way at all. And, you know, we, we, we do see them as a, a minority that have equal rights with everybody else and that, you know, we, we need to understand them better and et cetera, et cetera. Of course, this is, this, is, this is only natural and it's right. But I think that in the future, we have to look at them as almost, I won't say shamans, but as special people that, that have talents 
and that they're I mean, you know, I mean, what I'm saying here, I think, is is that we need to recognise them, not just as special, but that they have incredible abilities and we can learn so much from them, far more than what we're doing at the moment. I mean, you know, something like calendar counting is seen as almost like a novelty. I mean, there are some great musicians that, that go on stage and they perform. That's fine. You know, or, or artists that, that, that have exhibitions. That's, that's great. That's really great. But I think that there's a depth to Savant that's going to tell us a lot more about our destiny in the future and, you know, what we can learn from a deep subconscious level to how all of these abilities relate to what happened in the past and the foundations of civilization in the first place. Well, yeah, and when you, when you consider that they provided the impetus for a leap in in the culture why why would they not be the 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 way of having another leap in our in in our species you know if if yeah. if we were able to utilize them instead of you know kind of isolating exactly them mean. yeah in other words you know, as I said, unfortunately, there's a tendency to see savants as novelties, and that that needs needs. Well, I say to stop. It's not about that. It's it's about understanding their true the true depth of knowledge that they have, and also to accept that their mannerisms is is not unusual. That's their why. I mean, I'm not saying that the Denisovans actually acted or had mannerisms in the same way as, as our autistic people today. I don't, I don't think that they did. I think that their abilities, their savant abilities, were just a natural process. It's like one thing, for instance, I mean, a lot of savants have a different hearing to us modern humans. Sorry, what am I talking about? I'm getting confused. To normal people, right? And yeah. They can hear things that we can't, which is one of the reasons why when they go into crowded spaces, they, they, they freak out because they're hearing so much more than what we do. Their, their ears are far more attuned and they can hear different frequencies, probably much lower frequencies. Um, now, I suspect this is a savant skill that I think definitely was inherited from our, you know, our predecessors like the Denisovans, um, you know, perhaps the Neanderthals, Hummerectus, whatever, and that our hearing has actually got worse. Um, I mean, we know that certain animals obviously have acute hearing. Dogs, for instance, you know, I mean, obviously a dog whistle, uh, you can't hear, but it will bring a dog to you because they'll hear that sound. You know, so, yeah, this is just one example of if we understand that and know that, then we can start thinking about things like the Denisovans or the Neanderthals differently. It's like, why did the, 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 the Denisovans, were, how were they able to start using music? I mean, if you start seeing it from an autistic perspective or a, a savant perspective, could it be that they hear natural sounds and develop ways of recreating those natural sounds, like bird sounds? 
you know, the sound that you might get inside a cave or wind, the sound of wind. And they memorize it to such a degree that they create the musical instruments to replicate what they hear, just in the same way that a savant today can hear, you know, um, you know, a symphony and then just go away and play it. You know, it's, I mean, it's again, kind of we funny. see that as a novelty. I'm sorry? Rather than being... You know, rather than being an anachronism, what if they are the next step in evolution? Well, I mean, maybe. I don't know. I mean, I, I don't think it's, it's that. I think the next step in evolution is for us to recognize, you know, that they themselves have extra sensory perception. I don't necessarily mean that in a, on a psychic level, though it can be, um, uh-huh. which is valuable for us to learn about our own origins within these other um, types of hominin, like the Denisovans, the Neanderthals, Homo erectus, etc. So that's, that's, right. that's the progression, in a way. I mean, but who knows? You could be right. But, I mean... Well, well you know, the Native Americans, when, when someone is different in their tribe, whether it's sexual orientation or the fact that they are um, not quite right in their head. They treasure those people and protect them rather than isolating them. Exactly. Uh, that's exactly it. And, and here's, here's the link with shamanism, because I wouldn't be the first to, to write in my books, as I've done in these recent ones, that there's a link between autism and shamanism. Um, because, the, you know, the, the unique mannerisms of somebody on the autistic spectrum has all of the recipe of the link with, with, with shamans uh, and what they do. I mean, shamans can be very strange people. I mean, I've met a few. Um, and, um, you know, and a true shaman is, you would consider to be mad, basically. Um, you know, I mean, they're, they're very deep and wise and got knowledge and they help and, you know, they have weird abilities. Um, but, you know, they're a little odd. Um, and of course, you know, people would say the same about people on the autistic spectrum as well. Um, yeah. And there are similarities. And as I said, I'm not the first person to write about that. I mean, I, I quote in both the Cygnus Key and I think Denisovan Origins um, that, that, you know, the, uh, others saying, making this link between autism. So there is a link. Therefore, almost certainly with the, the origins of shamanism in modern humans, probably comes from the Denisovans and or the also the, the, the Neanderthals because they almost certainly you know had shamans and wore feather coats and uh, necklaces of, of talons of birds and stuff like this but um, the, there's a link all of these three things together Denisovans autism shamanism roots and look at the main area where shamanism is so big even today in the area of Siberia, Mongolia, Central Asia, you know, what these people are doing could well date back to the age of the Denisovans. Oh, I, I don't doubt that at all. I mean, they've, they've all used hallucinogenics of one form or another to get into an altered state of consciousness in order to travel 
two other dimensions. I mean, they didn't call them other dimensions, but that's yeah, what literally. they were. Yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah, no, I, I totally agree with you. Um, and, I, I mean, you know, you have to ask yourself where, where all this began. Well, my latest research, and I've done two articles about this, uh, both of them available on, on Ancient Origins, um, relates to the actual roots of the Denisovans themselves. Who were the Denisovans? Well, firstly, we know that they were a sister group of the Neanderthals. Um, they, you know, they, they were close to Neanderthals than they are to us, certainly genetically. So that tells us that they split from what's known as the common ancestor. That's the common ancestor of modern humans, the Denisovans, and um, Neanderthals at a very early stage. We think probably about 800,000 years ago. So they went their way with, with, with the Neanderthals and we went our way. But sometime after that, the Denisovans split with the Neanderthals. Again, as to when this took place, there's dispute, but currently it's thought to be around 450,000 years ago. So that then meant that all of these different types of hominin went off and did their own thing. They had time enough to create their own physiology and appearance and look. They had time enough to create their own material culture, their own brain, their own mindset. Uh, and yet they all were still around about 45,000 years ago, as were Homo erectus. There were some Homo erectus still around at that time. So you've got a melting pot of, of different types of, of, of you know, of, 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 of individuals who probably all look different. I mean, the, the Neanderthals were pretty small. We were in the middle somewhere. And I think the Denisovans were pretty, were very tall. Um, and you've got to say, so where, where did all this start? Well, there's a cave in Israel, modern-day Israel, just outside of Tel Aviv called Kesem, Q-E-S-E-M. And this has been showing incredible advanced behavior, human behavior, yeah, sorry, human behavior, about 400 to 420,000 years ago. Um, this is the same time that the Denisovans coming out of Africa were in the Levant. And what I propose in, in my latest article is that what's going on there is the foundations of one of the branches of the, the Denisovans, the so-called Siberian Denisovans. And what's interesting is that in this cave, you have the earliest evidence of shamanism anywhere in the world. And it takes the form of a solitary uh, a swan wing bone that's been modified it's got, it's got marks on it shows it's been modified and the feathers were very clearly removed from it and this has led the archaeologists working at the site to conclude that this was shamanistic activity that may have cosmological factors and this is a swan remember so the earliest mm -hmm. form of totem and shamanism and animism known 
relates and revolves around the swan. Well, I show in my books that there seems to be a relationship with swan shamanism and the Denisovans, and this being passed down to us in Siberia, Mongolia, around 40 to 45,000 years ago, which is one of the reasons why at the site called Malta, to the west of Lake Bacow, you have all these beautiful carvings of swans going back 24,000 years, which the archaeologists involved have linked with animism, with the idea of the soul becoming a swan um, and the north-south migrations of swans um, every year. And in the same area, you have what's known as swan ancestry. This is the belief among tribes and clans that they are descended from a genetrix or um, creator in the form of a woman who they call the Swan Maiden. Um, and that the Swan Maiden is a divine being who comes down, is captured by a mortal man, usually a hunter, um, and forced into a mortal style of living, but produces children before she flies back off to, you know, bird heaven and um that people are you know the, the you know the 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 the, the clan itself or the tribe is are descended from those children yeah so yeah. that is that is strongest in the area of siberia mongolia uh, north asia as a whole and this is the very same areas that the siberian Denisovans were. I find that strange and I find it too coincidental once again. And I suspect that the swan was one of their most important symbols and was carried with them across hundreds of thousands of years. And it originates sense. in places like Kesem. So it makes, um, you know, and starts at places like Kesem. But um, so. Um, yeah, that, that's that's probably it. I think as far as uh, that, that's enough. I think as far as the Denisovans. So that's hopefully given your listeners something to think about. Oh, absolutely! And you know, the book is is so full of material. It's it's easily a college course, and it should be, because I, I think that yeah, okay. today today people aren't taught about our origins at all. And uh, it's important for us to do that research ourselves and educate ourselves. We are down to about the last five minutes, and I want to make sure you get a chance. Um, I know on my website I have your book, and, and it's also available at Amazon.com. Um, you want to give your website and tell, tell us a little bit about the uh, Human Origins Conference in April and stuff like that? Yeah, sure. Um yeah, I mean, my, my website is andrewcollins.com, uh, all as it sounds. Um, my next appearance um, is in November at the Origins Conference in London. That's um, November the 16th. But beyond that, uh, my next appearance in the United States is at the Human Origins Conference in Albuquerque, New Mexico, and that's in April, uh, I think I think the dates are 8th and 9th of, of April, uh, and then I'm back in the States 
in the end of May uh, for contact in the desert. So um, I look forward uh, to returning then. I mean, you know, I go to conferences, but I also make sure I do a lot of research as well whilst I'm there. You know, I team up with um, with people that I work with over there and, you know, we'll go places, um, you know, either researching to do with giants, uh, Native American tradition, um, or my other area of interest, which is uh, UFOs, um, portals, uh, and the idea of trans-dimensional contact. So uh, that's something which I'm going to be writing about uh, next. I mean, I've already written books on you know, um, UFOs, aliens, that sort of stuff. But uh, um, I'm going to go back to it uh, probably for another book shortly. So, uh, I mean, anything that comes out to do with the Denisovan, I generally end up doing an article about that goes on ancient origins. Uh, I do it with them because they publish quickly. And, you know, when you're dealing with news stories, you need to get stuff out really quickly. So, uh, keep watching out on there. Subscribe to them. I'm also doing a tour with Ancient Origins to Egypt in February. So if you want to go to all the great sites, private tour of the Great Pyramid, Sphinx, uh, and go on a Nile cruise, just come on to andrewcollins.com. All the details are there on the front, on the, the first opening page. So uh, look forward to seeing some of you at some of these events in the future. <laughs> Well, I, I can't thank you enough for all of your time and also for all of the material that you have put into to books for people to, to read and to question and to learn from because you've given a great gift and and certainly it will it will be here long after you are, but, but the material is out there for <clears throat> to coin a very famous old phrase for those with eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts to embrace. Um, yep. you've, you've, you've provided an amazing service, and, and just next time you publish a book, please make it pronounceable. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, I had the same problem in 2014 with Gobekli Tepe, didn't I, really? I mean, okay, when, when yeah. that was published, <laughs> when, when that was published, nobody had, nobody had heard of Gobekli Tepe, <laughs> but luckily everybody has now, so... Um, that, that's not a problem but Denisovan Origins I mean one of the reasons why we put those obscure titles in there is, is, is simply for marketing because you know if somebody's interested in Denisovans and they want to go on um, let's say Amazon um, the first thing that comes up is, is my book so you oh, know yeah. and people can then press the button and get it it's, it's, it's a marketing thing plus it's an appropriate title of course I mean because it is about well, yeah, the Denisovan <clears throat> origins of human civilization. So, well, I googled, um, I googled it on on YouTube and could only find two videos on it. So this will be a third, and Denisovan. hopefully will help. Yeah, I could really? find very little material. So I mean, there is. Be a... there's, there's there's quite a lot on there, somewhere. But um, <laughs> I mean, you know, it's it's. There, yeah, there, I mean, it is worth pointing out that there are some good videos on YouTube. I mean, I was only watching a, a new one just a few days ago um, that, that, that came out. I think it was um, Aeon's, Aeon's Stroke of PBS production. Uh, only short, you know, 10, 15 minutes. Yeah. But 
it's always good to 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 see what the academics are saying about the Denisovans and whether they're picking up on anything that uh, that 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 you know us fringe alternative people are are actually uh, are actually saying and they do eventually you know the the, old, the autistic thing is you know that, that is is growing with with that if you put uh Denisovans in the search engine for let's say Google I'm just going to do this now um, you put Google Denis well not Google Denisovans but if you put Denisovans up one of the things that will come up is is autism although it's not on this particular <laughs> search for some reason but I have seen it come up um, okay well so, we um, have you know, to in go other words, we're, beginning to... yeah we're way out yeah, of time <laughs> well look well I, I could talk forever obviously as you realise but I'll speak to you again sometime absolutely okay, thank you very thanks much. so very much bye bye now okay all the best and to you and everybody, thank you so much. This has been such a pleasure and such a gift. Please enjoy it as I have. Bye-bye now.